The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regim Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint, and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Hey, good morning. Merry Christmas. You guys feeling Christmassy? Yeah? Yeah, my, my kids woke up this morning. Dad, Dad, there's snow on the ground. Like, can we get on our snow clothes and, like, like go and sled? And I'm like, have you seen the snow? Go and look. Go on. And it's like there's, like, right a little dusting at our house. Like, you can kind of sort of tell on the car there was a little bit of snow. But they are ready, right? All primed and pumped for that, that imaginary white Christmas that, I don't know. Has there ever been a white Christmas here? When was, when was the last white Christmas we've had in Portland? I know it snows in Portland, but like snows on the 25th. Like, like, okay, okay, good. So, 
I've only been here eight years, so it shows what I know. Well, may, maybe this year again. All right. You guys in the mood for shopping? Right? How about Christmas cookies and eggnog? Getting really, really sick on too many Christmas cookies and too much eggnog. We have like a gallon and a half of leftover eggnog from Thanksgiving in our fridge. And I'm like, what in the world are we going to do with this? Like, I don't know. If you have suggestions for too much eggnog, what to do? There's something about, about Christmas and expectations. There's a certain way that our culture kind of sells or maybe even markets Christmas to us, right? And there's like this certain nostalgia that it's supposed to bring back, right? It's the same songs every year since we were wee little ones. And, and we grow up with the, some of the same traditions and, and rhythms and, and things we do on Christmas. And, and so we have this ideal, right, that we, we long for. It. Either it, it's, it's this happy, intact family right, around the Christmas tree, opening presents and celebrating wonderful family time together, or it's, it's a group of friends wearing ugly sweaters and, like, staying up late and sharing holiday cheer and, and, and it's drinking hot chocolate by the fire, right? And there's this just a nostalgia that our, our, our culture offers to us in, in Christmas, um, and it's meant to bring back that feeling, right, of being a kid again when you remember how fun it is to open presents and stay in your pajamas all day. Um, and, and I think those high expectations, right, and it tries to create this, this feeling in us, it, it, it really works for some of us. I, I, I was talking to Jonathan. He said his wife has already decorated the whole house and made it Christmassy and wonderful, and it's, and it's rad, and, it's, and he loves it. But for some of us, that that kind of dream of the perfect nostalgia, that memory of how things once were, you know what? Things were never actually that picture perfect, that greeting card little vision of Christmas. In fact, not all of us like figgy pudding. And we don't all have someone to kiss under the mistletoe. Right? And when someone, the reality of Christmas comes, it rarely lives up to that greeting card picture. For many of us, there's not enough money uh, to go around and buy gifts for the kids or all the, f- the people that we love. And in the midst of all the busyness of the planning of things we're supposed to do, we actually don't end up spending the time with the people that we love that we really hope to. And so at the end of the day, I think Christmas often offers a dream of what could be or an idealized memory of what, what once was, but it often ends up delivering something a lot less if we're honest about it. So we're going to spend four weeks in Advent, and we're going to do a a book that you probably have never heard preached before. We're going to take two chapters uh, in the book of Zechariah. We're going to do chapters 7 and 8. And as Mackenzie mentioned, Advent is simply this idea of coming. It's a a season where we, we talk about preparing our hearts and preparing the world to receive Christ. And this text in, I, in, in Zechariah, in particular, is about unmet expectations and, when, and what we do when we live in that place where our expectations, right, don't live up to the disappointments of life and life where there is real discouragement. 
And so here's where we're going today in Zechariah 7. It's going to challenge us to look at our expectations and our motivations. And then it's going to show us a surprising way to cultivate hope in an age of discouragement. Expectations and motivations, and then a surprising way to cultivate hope in an age of discouragement. First, some of those unmet expectations, and we see that in the first three verses here. Let me read it again. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev, which, by the way, is right about Christmas time, around December. I don't know if they'd have snow in Jerusalem, but about as likely as Portland, maybe. Now, the people of Bethel had sent... These are hard words, aren't they? Sharzer and Rejamelech, and their... Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> and I study Hebrew. <laughs> and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So they're asking this question. They're going to Jerusalem. They're asking the priests. They're like entreating of the Lord. Should we keep practicing this fast? And this question arises out of their unmet expectations of what God would do for them and their people. Now, I realize this is probably pretty foreign to us, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, right? We're just, we don't know, oh, yeah, my history of the minor prophets, right, is usually not very sharp. Um, so let's just do a little context, and I think you'll be surprised at how similar their situation was to ours today, okay? So God's people at this time, during Zechari- Zechariah's time, had, they had been sent into captivity, right, in Babylon. They spent about 70 years there because they had broken covenant with God. And then the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire, and this ruler in, in Persia, Cyrus, made a declaration, and he, he, he told the people in Israel, the, the, the refugees, those that had gone into captivity, you can go back into Jerusalem, and you can rebuild your temple. And it was just a change of policy. The, the Persian government, they weren't any less a dictator. They weren't any less a, an occupying force. They just had a different idea of how to keep people under them. Right? The Babylonians were a little more strong-fisted and destroyed people's religion and culture. And the Persian government said, no, no, we will we'll let you have some religious freedom um, with, with like uh, kind of a cage around you. So you can do your thing there, um, but it, it wasn't any less an occupying force. Um, and so, right, the people leave Babylon, they go back into Jerusalem, and they begin building the temple. In fact, the book of Ezra talks about this. It talks about the laying of the foundation of this new temple that they're going to establish because the Babylonians had destroyed Solomon's temple, right? And, and it describes a scene, I believe it's in Ezra 5, where, where the older generation that had seen the previous temple before Babylon were weeping because they saw how small it was. And then the young people are celebrating and they're so happy that, that the temple's getting rebuilt. And it says that there was so much weeping and, and, and celebration, you couldn't tell the difference. And so there's this mix of emotion here. And this new community in Jerusalem, it dealt with financial challenges, right? So it was, these were displaced people being put back into this land that had been largely deserted, right? And so now they're needing to reestablish their, their economy and trying to live life again. And then there's this social division, 
right? The, the people are totally divided. You have some people that stayed in the land, right? These tended to be the, uh, the, uh, the lower caste or kind of um, more uh, less educated poor community that, that weren't sent into Babylon. And they had stayed there, and they had developed their own community. And now you have these new people coming back in uh, from Babylon. There's other people that said, oh, we, we actually like life in Babylon or, or, or where we were uh, relocated. We don't want to go back. And then there were some that were the northern kingdom, right, and some were in the southern kingdom. Israel was already divided when the Babylonians took them over. And so you have people coming back from all these different political views and, and social uh, spheres, and they're, they're trying to do life again in this reestablished Jerusalem. And so, and this, this is what feels like life today, is that these people struggled financially, they were frustrated politically, and they were divided socially. And these people, more than most, understood unmet expectations and disappointment with God. If you read the prophets, especially like Isaiah, right, and Ezekiel, you see these promises that God gave to the people in captivity. And they were radical promises, right, full, full of hope, full of promise that God would come and deliver them from their enemies, that the, the, the Messiah would come and, and would rule in Jerusalem and he would bring peace to the kingdom. You read Ezekiel and, and, and he has a vision of the next temple that would be built and, and it's greater than Solomon's temple. And now as they're trying to rebuild this new temple, you're like, eh, you know what? This doesn't live up to our expectations. So that's the background of this scene. As this group of people are going up to ask, should we keep this fast in the fifth month? Now, that fifth month fast was the fast commemorating and mourning over the destruction of the temple. The temple was destroyed in the fifth month, and so for the last 70 years in captivity, God's people kept a fast where they would mourn, they would remember, oh, God, we, this, uh, the, the Babylonians came and destroyed your temple, and we're broken over that, and, we, and we're mourning that. And, and so there's a real confusion that they have right now, right? They're going up and they're saying, okay, the foundation's been built. The temple's been started. It's not done yet, but it's been started. We're not in, in captivity. We've been brought back to the promised land. So should we stop fasting and start celebrating? But it's not like what we expected. There's still more that we're longing for. There's confusion and ambiguity. Should we still be fasting and mourning for the loss of what, what once was? Have you ever felt that kind of ambiguity, that confusion? I don't know whether to be happy or sad, to be content or to long for more, right? They expected the kingdom to come in their generation. They expected the Messiah to deliver them from their enemies and to be reliving that former glory that they had. And when I'm honest, I think, in my own life, many of my own disappointments and unmet expectations flow out of what I thought life with Jesus would be like. Right? I look at my life and I ask, is this really what I thought it would be? And it's not even like midlife crisis stage yet, like I'm getting there. But at the end of the day, like there's, there's real question about, God, there's, there's significant unanswered prayers in my life. 
and I keep praying them, and they're not answered yet. God, there's still struggles and temptations in my life that I thought I'd be farther along (laughs) by this time, and I still struggle with some of the same issues. And I look at the world around me. I look at the political situation and the division in our culture. I look at the brokenness in the church, divisions in the church. I look at frustrations in my own family, and I ask, is this it, God? Is this what I signed up for? You told me you loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And sometimes I feel like I'm still waiting for that wonderful part to kick in. (laughs) You ever feel that way? This is Advent, so we're allowed to be a little morose before we get to Christmas, okay? Just kind of trying to keep it real. So how should we think about this tension that we live in? As believers, what kinds of expectations should we have in life? And honestly, I think we actually have a lot in common with this generation that Zechariah is speaking to, right? As, as Christians, as Christ followers, we live between the two advents of Christ. We celebrate the first coming of Christ, but we still long for that second coming. And you read the Gospels. Jesus taught us that his kingdom is here but it's not here. It's now and it's not yet. We've been set free from the guilt and shame of our sin. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the full inheritance that he's going to give us. But as we read Romans 8, it tells us that we're saved in hope. And hope that is seen is not hope. We don't yet see it. We have not yet received that resurrected body that's going to set us free from from death and decay and temptation. Hear me on this. This paradox of our faith is essential for us to grasp as believers. If we only emphasize the futureness of the kingdom, right, it's something out there that we're going to receive someday, then we're not going to believe in the present power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And we're going to shortchange ourselves with what God can do in us and through us. But if you only emphasize the nowness of the kingdom, we have it all now, you're going to be surprised by the experience of suffering and disappointment and hardship that you go through in your life. And you're going to be tempted to be bitter at God. And you're going to somehow think that that wasn't what you signed up for. And you're going to tend to hold yourself to a standard of perfection as though you can reach it in this life that's going to be oppressive and it's going to be impossible to maintain or it's just going to make you such a judgmental person that no one's going to want to be around you. Having a biblical understanding of what it means to live between the first and second advent of Christ helps us have realistic expectations of what life with God is like. And we need that realism if we're going to live in a world full of hope and yet honest about the brokenness that's here. And Advent gives us permission to be those kinds of people. That's the first one, is our unmet expectations. And we have a lot in common with these people that are, are struggling. Should we keep fasting or is it time to celebrate? And honestly, it's both, isn't it, for us today? 
Second, we see our own selfish motivations. And this text challenges us to examine our hearts in this. Look in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? Often our expectations are tied to our motivations, right? So here he's saying, you guys fasted for 70 years. But you know what? You did it for yourselves. And wasn't it the same as you're feasting, right? We think, oh, fasting is this self-sacrificial kind of thing, and so, of course, it's not selfish. And he says, no, no, the same selfishness that sent you and your forefathers into captivity was the same selfishness that you continued to walk in as you practice your religious rituals. And this cuts to the heart of the issue of, of religious hypocrisy that Jesus talks about and are all over the prophets, in the Hebrew scriptures, right? And, and many people, and I think it's important for us to listen to these critiques. Many people in our secular culture speak out against religious hypocrisy. And I think rightly, right? And they ask, how can the Bible be true if the people who follow the Bible are no different than those in the rest of the world? Or even sometimes that they're, they're actually worse <laughs> than a lot of the people in the world. How, how can the Bible be true? if that's the case. And what a lot of people don't realize, and I think even us, we don't always realize, is that the Bible is actually full of warnings against religious hypocrisy. And that the greatest resource that we have for critiquing and correcting the abuses of religion, they're not found in the writings of like famous atheists. They're actually found in the writings of the prophets and of Jesus of Nazareth. And we see some of that here. What we see here is that the Bible is not ignorant about human nature, right? It understands that there's actually two different ways to avoid God. There's two different paths that you can take in your quest for independence from God, right? And if you know that that story of the prodigal son, there's there's the obvious path that we think of of the prodigal son who runs away and breaks all the family rules and tries to to find happiness through wild living. But it's easy for us to forget there's also this older brother, right? And the older brother avoids God by keeping all the rules and by trying to earn his father's love. And these are both just different ways to maintain our control and our independence from God. The prodigal is selfish in his running away from God, and the older brother is selfish in his motivation for serving and obeying God. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, which of those two paths tends to be more deceptive? Which one is more dangerous? Which one tends to look better on the outside? And the message of the scriptures is, is that the path of religious hypocrisy is actually far more dangerous. So this passage is a powerful warning against that, and it invites us to examine our hearts. And as I've 
as I need to just search my own heart and I'm thinking through this, I'm like, how do I know? Like, so I'm, I'm, I'm practicing a fast, let's say. How do I know that I'm not doing it for myself? How do I know that my, my practice of, of, of rhythms of faith, my spiritual disciplines are not self-seeking? And I think there's at least two things that I can see here in this, in this text that have helped my own heart. Two questions to ask. And one is simply, is God a means to an end or is he an end in himself? Is God in your way a convenient, in, sorry, is God in your life a convenient way to justify moral and political values that you have? Or does God have permission to challenge and shape your values? Do you believe in God to get something from God, right? Success, health, superiority, acceptance by others, control. Or have you begun to grasp what Paul the Apostle means when he says that through Christ he's learned the secret to be content with much and with little? Or as he talks about suffering, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not asking, have you arrived yet? Are you like, oh yeah, death is gain, right? Life is Christ. I am fully content. Give me lots of money, give me nothing, I am content. I'm not saying, have you arrived I'm saying, have you tasted that? Do you desire more of that? That's a, that's a clear litmus test of whether we, God is just a means to something else or is a means in, in himself. And then another question to ask ourselves is the second one is simply, do we mourn, do I mourn just over the harmful effects of my sin or do I also mourn over the dishonor that, to God that my sin brings? Think about this. So, so here are the people in captivity mourning every year, fasting and weeping over what? Their sin or the consequences of their sin? You know, sometimes we don't know in our hearts, right? right? They, were, they had lost everything. They're living in poverty. They're living under oppression. God's saying, you know what? You guys were actually just mourning over your loss of prosperity, your loss of, of freedom and influence. That's easy. Anyone can do that. One way to test our hearts in this is simply to ask, do we turn from sin and confess it before it is brought to light, before it has a harmful effect on our lives and our reputations? Or is it only after that happens that we, that we walk in repentance? Right? That helps us see that and discern that deceptive nature of sin where, where I, am I just grieved because I'm embarrassed? Or I don't like that this is having a harmful effect? Or is there actually a grief over, over breaking God's heart? These are hard questions, but important for us to ask. And so... This text helps us look at our, our expectations and our motivations. And then finally, this text gives us a surprising way to cultivate hope in an age of discouragement. And here's the surprising way. We cultivate hope by embodying hope for this world and not just by believing in hope for the next world. I'll say that again. 
We cultivate hope in our lives by embodying and being the hope for the world and not just believing in a hope for the next world. Here's where I see that. Look at verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, and do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The surest way to know that our religious traditions are not simply self-seeking is to make genuine sacrifices in our life for other people who cannot give us anything in return. Right? And, and for some of us, sacrifice, that word sounds too intimidating, too much. What if we even just stepped it back and just said, right, what if we just started with inconveniencing ourselves for the sake of those who have nothing to give us in return? If our faith doesn't genuinely cost us anything, how, how do we know it's not self-seeking? Right? This is why doing justice and showing mercy is such a powerful path to authentic hope and uncritical, unhypocritical faith. Right? This is not just, oh, okay, you gotta go, go do good things out there. This is, this is for the sake of the world, but it's also for the sake of our own hearts to know that our faith is real. And I think it's worth looking at Christmas traditions, uh, just as a simple application point, right? Now I know a lot of what we do is, during the Christmas season are like just American cultural things, right? We, we, we decorate things, we get Christmas trees, we give uh, gifts, we go to Peacock Lane to look at the, the pretty lights, right? And, and I, I think... Believers, we, we seek to infuse Christ-centered meaning into those traditions. And I think that's good, right? We, we try to remind ourselves the reason for the season. We try, to, we try to, like, right, make it meaningful for ourselves, for our families, for those around us. And I think that is good and beautiful. But I do wonder if simply pointing to Jesus isn't enough to undo the inherent consumerism of our culture, and the tendency in our own hearts to just perform religious rituals simply for our own fulfillment and just because we've always done it that way. And so Zechariah in this passage reminds God's people that the reason that they were sent into captivity was because of their oppression of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. Right? These were the people in society that didn't have the resources and the protection to take care of themselves. And God had put in place laws and, and principles that he taught his people for the nation to care for them and for individuals to, to take that on themselves to care for the marginalized and the vulnerable. But instead, right, God's people turned a blind eye to, to oppression. They refused to give generously and they, and they even participated in the injustice, and then, because of that, God made them sojourners in a foreign land. Do you see, I mean, both the irony of it, but also God's loving hand and compassion in teaching his people that? You didn't love the alien and stranger and refugee among you, so you're going to become a refugee in another land. You didn't love the poor, and so you are going to become poor. 
to teach his people compassion, to teach them love for the weak and poor so they could identify with it, with them themselves. Look at this connection. I'm going to read uh, from Isaiah chapter 58 um, so we can see this. And Isaiah connects fasting with doing justice. Look in verse verse 6 of chapter uh, 58 of Isaiah. It just says this. Is not this the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Do you see it? Do you see the connection between fasting and the doing of justice? And, and not just like, oh, it's for the good of the poor and marginalized. He says, it's actually, it's going to be healing for your own soul. You need it, right? Just like fasting helps to wean our hearts off of the pleasures of this world and helps set our hope on the the coming kingdom, so sacrificially giving of time, of money, of energy, of resources helps us set our hope on that coming kingdom. So let's get really, really practical, okay? You guys get this newsletter when you came in? Most of you should have had it. It was on the kind of the front entryway. If you didn't get it coming in, make sure you get it on the way out, okay? We all have rhythms and traditions, and these rhythms and traditions are either going to turn us inward, more on ourselves, or they're going to train our hearts to love others and, and turn outwards, And I want to ask us, what Christmas traditions do we have that that get us face-to-face with the homeless, with the refugee, with the incarcerated, with the widow or widower, with the homebound or the chronically ill, or perhaps simply the college student who's away from home and has nowhere to spend Christmas? We've said it again and again. We want to be a community marked by radical, ordinary hospitality. Right? This idea of hospitality, it, it comes from this it's a compound Greek word of, of loving the stranger, right? the, the, the philozenia. Like, does that characterize us? And it's not just, oh, you've got a beautiful home, and so you, you throw a party, right? Sometimes it's, it's hospitality in our home, but often it's being a person of hospitality out in the world and going to the broken places in the world. And so what we want to do is encourage us this Christmas season to start and just do something practical in softening our own hearts to the broken in the world. And so on this, we have this little section on the uh, Advent season, and we list just four organizations that will help us do justice and have mercy during the Advent season. And, and the hope is, is that community groups will just get together and, and, and talk about it and pray about it. And maybe there's people you already know. You're like, I know a shut-in that lives just down the street. We're going we're gonna to 
bring them Christmas dinner, and we're going to visit them and, 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 and care for them. Or, or if, if you're, you're like, you know what, I don't know what to do. Find one of these organizations. It's Portland Rescue Mission, <clears throat> Hands on Greater Portland, Embrace Oregon, and then the Refugee Volunteer Organization. Look them up. Call them up. Maybe call all of them. Hear what they have, just opportunities to volunteer and pray about it and do it as a community group, do it as a Bible study, do it as a group of friends with your ugly sweaters on. However you do it, find simple avenues that, that lets you not just set your hope on Jesus, but begin to embody Jesus in the world this holiday season. And then just the, the final, a final kind of exhortation about that is there shouldn't be anyone in this church that has to celebrate Christmas alone. So I would encourage you guys to look around and just have that awkward conversation. What are you doing for Christmas? You want to join us. You want to do something. Or I don't have anyone. Can I come over? Can I... Can I join your, your family? Just have those conversations. Or if you're, you're shy, talk to one of the leaders. But we, we don't want anyone celebrating Christmas alone. Let's be a people who celebrate as a family together. As we close, there's, this passage continues and it, uh, in, in Zechariah. And it describes how God's people turned a stubborn shoulder. They closed their ears and they hardened their hearts like diamond to the cries of the afflicted and the poor and to the words of God. And, and I, I wonder sometimes if that, if that doesn't describe the, the, the church today in America and our response to some of the more difficult people in our society, the homeless, the refugee, the, the immigrant, or, or fill in the blanks, whatever the, the, uh, the culture vilifies or, the, or the, our, our political party vilifies, whatever it is, we have so much to learn about being humble, loving servants. And so I want to encourage us to soften our hearts and to walk in a way that cultivates hope. And in closing, I want us to direct our attention to Jesus. Right? Where does hope come from in the first place? Doing justice, this text argues, can cultivate hope in our hearts. But unwavering hope cannot come from anything that we do. It has to come from something done on our behalf. And that's the message of Advent and Christmas. To become people who have hope and who embody hope, we need to first be humbled and broken. We need to see that we have hardened our hearts like diamond. We've turned a blind eye to others and to the words of God. And we've lived in captivity because of the shame of our own sin. And, and we can't deliver ourselves. We can't get ourselves out of the captivity of our sin. We need God to rescue us and set us free. And I want to close with a short reading from another prophet named Zechariah that we read about in the Gospel of Luke. This is 
the father of John the Baptist, and he, and he saw this vision of hope and how the Messiah would come and he would set the captives free and he would bring justice and hope. And this is our, our only hope for life and for uh, living uh, in this world. And so listen to me, this text with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. <clears throat> Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Lord Jesus, you, you are that sunrise that gives light to us who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and you guide our feet in the path of peace. And so I pray for my own heart and for everyone here that, that this Christmas season that we would find you, uh, that if we've been seeking, if we've been walking around in the dark, or if we have been going through the motions of religious ritual, but have not known a true intimacy with you, uh, that you would shine on our hearts, that we would be awakened to your love uh, for us, and that we would give our lives to you uh, to know that, that true freedom uh, that you bring. And we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. We're going to transition uh, into a uh, a video that was created by, by some of the artists in our church, um, and it's, a, uh, it's an Advent meditation that I want to invite you to just listen to and, and meditate on. Hope is expectation. Hope is anticipation. Hope is God in man's heart pumping in unison. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus would approve of what we do, the way we beat words into weapons and turn them on us and him, the way we're asleep to worship most days when we sing without action. It's simply lip service, servicing our constructed community perception. Listen. I'm only wondering what words would wake us because we are dead to hope and we have made our cozy beds. They look more like graves with headstones and long after I'm gone, they'll be read hopeless. I hope it's nice and I hope you're comfortable and I hope hope will be the reason we begin to beat weapons back into words, tools to tend to the needy and all of the least of these. Because hope is not a bullet-cocked handgun in the safe for protection. It's not self-medicating anxiety through more television. 
It's not found in worshiping your favorite politician. Hope is using old tools to finish what he started, starting with an invitation to your neighbor, to your enemy, and to your friend. We all deserve a chance for participation because I am the less than and you all have let me in. Listen, it's not what you think it is. Violence beats old words to death while profanity sings me back to life. It speaks to the vanity of pride. It's Jesus' words that is love and life. And that broke the young ruler's back. And those sayings broke my will and brought me back around, convinced me to listen to the sound of his voice. I promise unity between divinity and humanity has bridged us to heaven. It was the God-man who had violence done to him, and he spoke profanity to wake you and me and them. And if his calling is to love and worship and consider sin as loss, it's because the cross of Christ preaches hope. And my death to sin is appropriate. So choke on forgiveness and vomit hate. Throw up your hands and submit, because we have been fit with ears to hear the voice that's calling us to action. Words birthed from expectation married to anticipation. This is hope. Lift your voice in unison with the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Breathe, release, repeat. Let us find rest in thee. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.